The first order of business is to whet your whistle about this press conference by the Amistad Project on election whistleblowers who came forward. As usual, I'll link to this so you can go watch it yourselves. Moreover, there are institutions and persons available to you who hold within their possession or within their knowledge who can easily decide to be forthcoming and confirm the sworn statements of these whistleblowers and the other evidence which we are releasing today. You will hear evidence detailing how 130,000 to 280,000 completed ballots, ballots which persons or a person or a machine completed, put in the envelope, placed return addresses on, and then those ballots, 130,000 to 280,000, were transported from Bethpage, New York, into Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where they disappeared. He says it wrong. It's Lancaster. I know because I live there. Let me restate that again. This evidence demonstrates, and it's through eyewitness testimony that's been corroborated by others through their eyewitness statements, that 130,000 to 280,000 completed ballots for the 2020 general election were shipped from Bethpage, New York, to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where those ballots and the trailer in which they were shipped disappeared. I promise it wasn't me. So if inquiring minds want to know, we should probably look into this. Now we turn to this ridiculous dude, Sam Cedar. If you watch my show, I assume you don't like to watch his show. But he tore into Jimmy Dore the other day because Jimmy Dore was attacking AOC. He says Jimmy Dore has a silly argument, as if the things he said about AOC aren't true, but that's not the case. The things Jimmy has said about AOC are true. Let me preface this with Sam Cedar's mission in life. He's a tool. Sam Cedar is a tool of the people who want to keep you in the sheep pen. His job is to take leftist positions the way Cenk Uger does, and then to persuade you that you have to stay within the electoral system to fix anything. He's there to keep you hoping that you can solve all the problems that we face through leftist solutions, but also through the electoral process, which just ain't gonna happen. So he lays out his reality, he lays out his facts, which paint the picture of the electoral system as inescapable. So like every sheepdog, like every controlled opposition tool, his job is to temper the convictions of the masses. He's there to make you think you can solve your problems through the system. And like any gaslighting sociopath, he looks at you in a condescending way, like you're an idiot sandwich, and tells you, no, you idiot, you have to solve it through the electoral process. Duh, everyone knows this. And conversations like this are why we keep staying in the sheep pen instead of jumping out of the boiling pot, to mix a metaphor. Make no mistake, this guy is here to keep us in the pot. So first off, he characterizes AOC as somebody who wants to get actual good things done and is actually getting good things done. Now she may want to get things done, but she's not actually voting that way. And so he mischaracterizes her in a very tricky way here. Do it, but it would cut into her ability 
to actually do real things for real people. Not people who want to sit around and feel good about themselves, and that's the agenda. Her agenda is not to make people feel good about themselves. Bullshit. Her agenda is to get specific issues passed through Congress. Bullshit. So that they are executed and the American people enjoys them. No, no. She and the other sheepdogs had a chance to scuttle the CARES Act, and they didn't do it. And you don't have anything to say about that fact. They didn't do it. So you can't say she wants to get things done for real people. She wants people to like her and stay inside the DNC. And there is no theory whatsoever. Now. Certainly doesn't come from this video. Of course. But I challenge any. He's talking about Jimmy Dore's video that I excerpted the other day. But he has nothing substantive to say about the points made against AOC by Glenn Greenwald on that show. Glenn points out that AOC's voting record is imperialist. Jimmy points out that her voting record doesn't support actual workers because of the CARES Act. Glenn points out that she fired two of her best workers because they didn't pass muster with the DNC. She voted for Nancy Pelosi as speaker as soon as she got in, and she hasn't challenged her speakership since. She refused to campaign with Bernie after New Hampshire, and she has sought to put distance between herself and Bernie ever since. She's failed to endorse a number of justice Democrats who were trying to primary incumbent Democrats. As an example, she didn't endorse Cori Bush the second time. And if we can't figure this out, AOC will be the next Bernie Sanders, and we'll all stay within the corrupt sheepfold again. Generation after generation, we keep getting fooled this way. So Sam Cedar is all hot air. He's not going to say anything true or substantive against AOC because that would make his sheepdogging a lot harder. We have to have these heroes within the system that we keep hoping will fix it. And the new generations of voters keep coming along and buying into this. And the old generations get amnesia and they forget and they get sucked in again and again and again. We really need to figure this out. Anybody to give me a theory that shows how AOC can achieve more progressive change by coming out and saying at this point, in the lead up to the general election, don't vote for the Democrat at the top of the ticket. And again, this is the false dichotomy. Vosh the sheepdog, Jink the Uyghur, they also use this false dichotomy. You're trapped, folks. You have to vote for the Democrat because the Democrat is better than the Republican. You're trapped. You gotta stay in your sheep pen. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false wall. It's not even a real wall. We don't have to stay inside that sheep pen. It doesn't even have walls, but they keep talking about the walls as though they're real, and so we stay inside their box. No, we don't have to vote for corrupt Democrats nor corrupt Republicans. What he never wants you to know is there is no solution within the electoral system. His job is to keep us from piling into the streets and fixing it with general strikes and protests. If I were to go on his show, I would first ask him, why does he accept the kind of logic that Cenk Uyghur uses, even though he knows that Cenk Uyghur is funded by the Clinton cabal? Cenk Uyghur is funded by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is a bundler for the Clinton machine. Therefore, we know why Cenk wants us to vote for corporatists. We know where his money is coming from. We know how his bread is buttered. What I would then next ask Sam here is how is his bread buttered? Who's paying him to try to keep us all in the sheepfold? Who's paying him to temper our convictions? 
Who's paying him to be controlled opposition so that we won't try to escape the duopoly? He keeps coming back to one infallible point he thinks is infallible, that we have to vote for one or the other, and there's no good in voting outside of the system. And there's truth in what he says. There isn't a demonstrable effect from voting outside of the duopoly, but we have to go beyond voting, and that's what he doesn't want us to figure out. Jimmy Dore has some things figured out, and his audience is bigger than Sam's, which I'm sure bothers Sam a lot. And the people listening to Jimmy are starting to come around to the idea that AOC is a sheepdog, the squad is a sheepdog, and everybody else that's supposedly progressive inside the DNC are all there for one reason, to keep us in the sheep pen. And this was the mo their moment. And I keep seeing news people say things they, they re they're treating the CARES Act like it was just another vote. Instead of what it really was, was the biggest upward transfer of wealth in the history of humankind. And it will remake this country forever. And people have no idea what's coming. We're going to have a permanent underclass. We're going to have permanent long-term unemployment. We're going to have uh, states reducing services because people can't afford to pay taxes and states have to balance their budgets. And we have a bunch of rapacious oligarchs live in Washington who aren't going to help us. How, and we have a bunch of progressives who we thought were going to fight for us who are rolling over at nuclear speed inexplicably with not getting a goddamn thing back. At least Mitch McConnell, you know what he's getting. What the fuck is the squad Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren getting? They're getting nothing except invitations to parties. Look at Katie's face there. Yeah, you're right, Jimmy. That's exactly what's going on. And not many pundits are talking about it this way. And the sheepdog pundits, whom Jenk leads around like they have a ring in their nose, are not going to say anything about this. We need to keep calling out the pundits on the left who refuse to do anything other than sheepdog us. If you're watching the video, you can see five faces right now. And the five faces you're looking at are not sheepdogs. I sometimes think Katie is susceptible, but she's for the most part hanging with the right crowd, so I think she might be okay. The point I'm trying to make is that this is a very small group of people who are trying to tell you the truth. You're not going to get this even from independent media, even from supposed leftist independents. Most of the people who have any size of an audience are sheepdogs, and they follow Jenk around and they take orders from Jenk. And we know whom Jenk takes orders from. There are a number of fronts that this small group of people is fighting on, and one of them is repression of the news. Glenn claims that the New York Times is a fraud, and if you've been following this show, you know why the New York Times is a fraud. The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, they're all obvious tools of the oligarchy. So this piece, which you can find on Substack, is titled Demanding Silicon Valley Suppress Hyperpartisan Sites in Favor of Mainstream News, The New York Times is a Fraud. The corporate news organizations masquerading as reliable and nonpartisan are, in fact, as hyperpartisan as any sites on the internet and spread as much misinformation. The most prolific activism demanding more Silicon Valley censorship is found in the nation's largest news outlets, the media reporters of CNN, the disinformation unit of NBC News, and especially the tech reporters of the New York Times. That is where the most aggressive and sustained pro-internet censorship campaigns are waged. Try to say pro-internet censorship campaigns three times fast. 
pro-internet censorship campaigns, pro-internet censorship campaigns, pro-internet censorship campaigns. Come on, let's hear you do it. Due in part to a self-interested desire to re-establish their monopoly on discourse by crushing any independent or dissenting voices, and in part by a censorious and arrogant mindset which convinces them that only those of their worldview and pedigree have a right to be heard, they largely devote themselves to complaining that Facebook, Google, and Twitter are not suppressing enough speech. It is hall monitor tattletale whining masquerading as journalism petulantly complaining that tech platforms are permitting speech that, in their view, ought instead to be silenced. In Tuesday's New York Times, three of those censorious tech reporters, Kevin Roos, Mike Isaac, and Shira Frankel, published an article on Facebook's post-election deliberations over how to alter its algorithms to prevent the spread of what they deem misinformation regarding the election. The most consequential change they implemented, the New York Times explained, was one in which hyperpartisan pages are repressed in favor of promoting a spike in visibility for big mainstream publishers like CNN, the New York Times, and NPR, a change the paper of record heralded as having fostered a calmer, less divisive Facebook. More alarmingly, the New York Times suggested, i.e. prayed, that these changes designed by Facebook as an election-related emergency measure would instead become permanent. Marvel at these two paragraphs and all of the tenuous and self-serving assumptions buried in them. The change was part of the break glass plans Facebook had spent months developing for the aftermath of a contested election. It resulted in a spike in visibility for big mainstream publishers like CNN, The New York Times, and NPR, while posts from highly engaged hyper-partisan pages such as Breitbart and Occupy Democrats became less visible, the employees said. It was a vision of what a calmer, less divisive Facebook might look like. Some employees argued the change should become permanent, even if it was unclear how that might affect the amount of time people spent on Facebook. In an employee meeting the week after the election, workers asked whether the nicer newsfeed could stay, said two people who attended. Well, if there's going to be a nicer Facebook, it's certainly not going to include me. I'm sure that wouldn't bother the New York Times at all. I know it wouldn't bother the Wall Street Journal because they published an article against me specifically and Victor Tiffany because we were getting too active on Facebook and they didn't like us muscling in on their territory. You should go back and watch that show if you get a minute. It was hilarious. Truth be told, the powers are more afraid of Americans meddling with elections than they are with Russians. Back to Glenn. The conceit that outlets like the New York Times, CNN, and NPR are the alternatives to hyper-partisan pages is one you would be eager to believe, or at least want to induce others to believe, if you were a tech reporter at the New York Times, furious and hurt that millions upon millions of people would rather hear other voices than your own and simply do not trust what you tell them. Inducing Facebook to manipulate the algorithmic underbelly of social media to artificially force your content down the throats of citizens who prefer to avoid it while rendering your critics' speech invisible, all in the name of reducing hyperpartisanship, divisiveness, and misinformation is of course a highly desirable outcome for mainstream outlets like the New York Times. The problem with this claim is that it's a complete and utter fraud, one that is easily demonstrated as such. 
There are few sites more hyper-partisan than the three outlets which the New York Times applauded Facebook for promoting. In the 2020 election, over 70 million Americans, close to half of the voting population, voted for Donald Trump, yet not one of them is employed by the op-ed page of the non-partisan New York Times and are almost never heard on NPR or CNN. That's because those news outlets, by design, are pro-democratic party organs who speak overwhelmingly to democratic readers and viewers. It is hard to get more partisan than the news outlets which the New York Times tech reporters and apparently Facebook consider to be the alternatives to hyper-partisan discourse. In April, Pew Research asked Americans which outlet is their primary source of news, and the polling firm found that the audiences of NPR, CNN, and especially the New York Times are overwhelmingly Democrats, in some cases almost entirely so. And I've read this table in a previous episode, so I'm going to skip it now, but you can go back to this article and read it for yourselves. In a nutshell, what it shows is that there are no nonpartisan news outlets. And it also demonstrates that Fox News and MSNBC are the most partisan. As Pew Polling put it, about 9 in 10 of those who named the New York Times, 91%, and NPR, 87%, as their main political news source identify as Democrats with CNN at about 8 in 10, 79%. These outlets speak to Democrats, are built for Democrats, and produce news content designed to be pleasing and affirming to Democrats, so they keep watching and buying. One can say many things about these news outlets, but the idea that they are the alternatives to hyper-partisan pages is the exact opposite of the truth. It is difficult to find more hyper-partisan organs than these. Then there is the question of who does and does not read misinformation. It is rather astonishing that the news outlets that did more than anyone to convince Americans to believe the most destructive misinformation of this generation, that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction and was in an alliance with Al-Qaeda, the New York Times, The Atlantic, NBC, and The New Yorker have the audacity to prance around as the bulwarks against misinformation rather than what they are, the primary purveyors of it. Over the last four years, they devoted themselves to the ultimate deranged, mangled conspiracy theory that the Kremlin had infiltrated the U.S. and was clandestinely controlling the levers of American power through some combination of sexual and financial blackmail. The endless pursuit of that twisted conspiracy led them to produce one article after the next that spread utter falsehoods, embraced reckless journalism, and fostered humiliating debacles. The only thing more absurd than these hyperpartisan, reckless outlets posturing as the alternatives to hyperpartisanship is them insisting that they're the only safeguards against misinformation. Note how insidiously creepy is the New York Times' description of a censored, regulated internet. They call it a vision of what a calmer, less divisive Facebook might look like and claim an unnamed Facebook employee described it as a nicer newsfeed. Yes, discourse that is centralized and regulated, where no dissent is tolerated, where alternative voices are silenced, is always calmer and less divisive. That's always the core goal of censoring speech and ideas to eliminate divisiveness and to pacify the population calmer and nicer. That is always the result when orthodoxies imposed downward from the most powerful institutions of authority can no longer be meaningfully challenged. I'll break in here and I'll say that the comfy Democrats take these leads and just follow them like parrots. 
I can't tell you how many times since the hyperpartisan mainstream media has called it for Joe Biden that I've been told to just calm the fuck down. Stop being so divisive. Don't pick on our progressive politicians. They're doing the best they can under difficult circumstances. Just keep hoping and praying and maybe we'll move them to the left. The brain-dead comfy neolibs suck this stuff up. They swill it down like hogs at a trough. If you've had an argument lately on Facebook, you're not arguing with people, you're arguing with the New York Times. Even if they don't actually read the New York Times, the information from there comes down to them through the sources they do follow. Everything they know, they know, is from corporate sources. And that's why we're not really arguing with people, we're arguing with parrots. The censorious mentality being peddled with increasing aggression is always chilling and dangerous. That it is media outlets, which ought to be the most vocal champions of free discourse, instead taking the lead in begging and pressuring Silicon Valley to censor the internet more and more is warped beyond belief. The internet should be free and left alone, especially by those with their record of deceit and propaganda. Indeed, if we are to have an internet controlled from above by unseen tech overlords in the name of eliminating hyperpartisanship and disinformation and fostering a calmer and nicer population, the sites now being artificially and manipulatively promoted are the absolute last ones who can credibly claim entitlement to that benefit. The New York Times has placed itself in a real bind. When they do try to say something true, as an example, Joe Biden's corrupt cabinet that he's appointing, their readers come out against them on Twitter in droves. The New York Times has created a monster by pandering to Democrats. If they want to keep their readership, they can't change course now, so they're basically trapped. So if you're ever going to hear the news, it's going to be on hyper-partisan sites like this one, at least until they eliminate us. Here's the quote of the day. I'm quoting myself. We'll know we're doing our job when the powers find it necessary to take us out. If they don't see the need to execute us, we aren't trying hard enough. So the first step is for them to silence our voices in the media. And if that doesn't work, I think I'd rather go out that way than wait for old age to take me out. And if we aren't afraid to die, there isn't much they're going to be able to do about our revolution.